0: You are listening to Beltway Beef, official commentary from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. My name is Ed Frank, and I am NCBA's Director of Policy Communications. We're going to do something a little different this week since our offices are closed for the Christmas holiday. Uh, Instead of interviewing an NCBA officer or rancher or staffer, we are going to broadcast the audio from a year-in-review webinar that we hosted from our D.C. headquarters this past week. It includes policy updates from NCBA's President Craig Uden, as well as NCBA's Colin Woodall, Allison Cook, Kent Backus, Danielle Beck, Scott Yeager, and Ethan Lane. 2017 has been a very busy and eventful year for NCBA and the cattle industry, and we want to thank you for everything you've done to make it a good one. Until next week, enjoy the policy wrap-up, have a very happy new year, and check us out online at beefusa.org and on Twitter at Beltleybeef. Beef. The webinar's audio will start in a few seconds. Thanks for listening.
1: Well, we'll start the update with our chief lobbyist, Senior Vice President of Government Affairs, Colin Woodall. Colin?
2: Thank you, Craig, and thanks to everybody for joining us tonight. We're coming to you live from the D.C. office of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, just three blocks from the White House. It has been an interesting 2017 for us under the Trump administration and with Congress, a year that has provided a lot of great opportunities for us, a significant number of wins, but at the same time, still many challenges that we've had to think through and will continue to think through. So this is also a great opportunity for you to get to know more of the D.C. staff a little bit better. As we go through our team tonight, they'll be able to highlight the issues that they have been working on and help you better understand the priorities of NCBA, not only throughout 2017, but where we will be picking up our efforts moving into 2018. 2018 is an extremely important year for our country because we will be going towards the midterm elections in November of next year and that will result in possibly a new Congress and depending upon what the results of that election are will determine just how effective the president is in the next two years of his administration so that's also something that we're keeping a very close eye on because when you look at our timeline for 2018 and our ability to move things forward, we're not going to have as much time as we did this past year. The reason why is because of these elections. These members and incumbents and also challengers are going to be looking at every opportunity they can to get back home to talk to constituents in their hope of getting re-elected in the fall. So to begin our effort, we're going to start tonight with our Executive Director of Government Affairs, Allison Cook, to talk a little bit about efforts of the Department of Transportation and also with the Farm Bill. Allison.
3: Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us this evening. I'm going to start off by uh, discussing an important transportation item that we've been working on for a while. Um, More than a year ago, it was brought to our attention that there were some issues and some concerns with the uh, electronic logging devices. They actually go into effect today for everyone except for ag and livestock haulers. as those of you who are looking at the webinar can see, uh, NCBA was very instrumental in achieving a 90-day waiver um, from the the implementation day of these devices. We continue to have our conversations over at DOT and stressing the uh, the difference uh, in hauling live animals versus um, other ag commodities and and boxes and and whatnot that's hauled around the country. So, um, continuing those conversations with DOT, we also achieved appropriations language uh, in the House, a one-year delay on ELDs for livestock haulers. Um, The Senate had some report language, um, but we also had a letter that we got a lot of support on from the House and the Senate moving forward with that language uh, in hopes of having an omnibus package down the road. So we're continuing to use that as as one of our tools. We also have a petition to DOT for a longer term waiver. Um, They could give us as much as uh, five years away from the ELDs, which would give us more time to focus on our larger goal, which is fixing hours of service for livestock haulers. Um, So DOT has told us they've given us this waiver so that they can continue taking a look at the comments that uh, were submitted on our waiver. So, as I stated, we're going to continue to look at hours of service. We have members of Congress that have already said they're interested in uh, standalone legislation, so we're going to continue down that path. Hopefully, we can get a longer-term waiver from DOT that we're still working on so that we have more time to work with Congress on the hours of service fixes. Um, Again, I think that we have made – NCBA has made a huge dent in having a conversation with DOT. We have had many haulers. Some of you on the phone have had your members um, here to DC to meet with FMCSA, which stands for the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration. Uh, Secretary Chow has certainly heard from, from our haulers and uh, we'll continue to have those conversations at DOT. We will be back in there in a couple of weeks and we'll continue to push the message that um, the importance of the animal welfare, of moving our animals is, uh, is very important and getting them where they need to go safely. So, the next item I'm going to talk about is the Farm Bill. The 2018 Farm Bill is is, is moving, if you will. The uh, the House, House Ag Committee has penned to paper. Um, the exact timeline is still a little bit unknown, but we've been working this issue for more than a year now. Um, we have a couple of requests that we've made to the House Ag Committee. We continue to have those conversations and stressing the importance. Um, our very first priority is a fully funded foot and mouth disease vaccine bank. Um, we are asking for 150 million a year for the life of the Farm Bill, which is five years. We continue to stress that the need for this bank, uh, the need for the, um, the amount of doses that we're requesting, um, that's what the 150 covers. So it will be a bank overseas. Um, we would have the ability for surge capacity in the case of an outbreak, and we would also have plenty of antigen on hand to take care of, um, of the needs of the amount of animals that we move in this country, and that and that we're producing. Um, again, there is there is a lot of support for the bank itself. We are looking for ways to fund this bank, and we're working with House and Senate Ag uh, to move this forward. There is support, uh, bipartisan support um, on both sides of the aisle, and uh, on, from the House and Senate, and from members that aren't on House and Senate Ag, which is is nice to see. We're also focused on the conservation title, um, making sure that EQIP is robust. And a lot of a lot of you all and a lot of our producers have, have asked for a, a little bit of streamlining and to make sure that we get our NRCS agents out of the office doing paperwork and out in the field um, helping and seeing more of what's going on out, um, out on the ranch. And so that's something that we have continued to have conversations with, um, with Ag Committee staff on and then the the last item that we're going to be focused on in the farm bill is just maintaining research funding um and we continue to support that uh, and that title as well so the hopes is that in the next couple of months in this new year that we will see some language uh, probably from house ag committee first and then once we see that language we will know exactly how we need to move forward thank you
2: just as a reminder for those of you who are on the webinar if you have a question as we continue to go through the presentations tonight Please type those into the box that you see on your screen and we will take as many of those as we possibly can. Uh, As we go into 2018, the Farm Bill will be a major priority for us. The current Farm Bill does expire at the end of September of 2018, so there's a lot of work to do in a very short amount of time. So we have uh, quite a few things, as Allison said, that we need to uh, push forward on. And, And one of those also is continuing to push back against any effort to bring back a lot of tired old issues such as country of origin labeling and the gypsum rule. Killing the gypsum rule this year was one of our large victories or big victories. We're Very thankful to the new secretary of agriculture for making the decision to keep government out of our ability to market cattle. So we will uh, continue to make sure that we do that as we go into this next farm bill. One of the major topics that you have heard about here over the past several weeks here in Washington DC It's the effort to try to achieve some sort of comprehensive tax reform. To give you an update on where that stands, turning it over to our Director of Government Affairs, Danielle
4: Beck. Thanks, Colin. Uh, Good evening. Republicans in Congress have been talking about tax reform for probably about two decades now, uh, but an aligning of the stars that resulted in Republicans having control of both the House, Senate, and the White House uh, has really kicked up the momentum when it comes to tax reform over the last year now. Uh, for the last three months, we've really started to put pen to paper and see a lot of momentum with tax reform, seeing legislation move uh, and this process uh, is really culminating in two votes tomorrow. The house will be voting uh, tomorrow morning on the conference final conference bill for tax reform. Uh, once the house passes that bill, which we do believe will happen, uh, that will kick off 10 hours of debate in Senate. Uh, in the Senate. The Senate will then vote on that bill. We believe that the Senate has the votes to pass that. Uh, And then final comprehensive tax reform will be sent to the president's desk for signature uh, enacting tax tax cuts uh, just in time for Christmas. Um, You know, At the end of the day, I hate to say it, but this bill is sort of a mixed bag for agriculture. Um, It is the product of trying to shove $2 trillion worth of tax cuts into a $1.5 trillion bill Uh, And that was necessary because Republicans uh, wanted to bypass the 60 votes necessary in order to avoid a filibuster in the Senate. And so they moved this process through reconciliation, uh, meaning that they could not add to the federal deficit. Um, So there there are some good things in the bill. There are some bad things in the bill. uh, and We'll talk about that. Uh, The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, uh, it expands the death tax exemption limit. So uh, upon enactment, those limits will be doubled uh, it'll go from five million for individuals, ten million for couples, indexed for inflation, uh, to ten million for an individual, twenty million for couple. But with that index, it'll be eleven million for individuals, uh, just a little over twenty-one million for couples. Uh, but that's only in place for eight years. So uh, starting in 2026, we'll revert back to the current level. Uh, it expands cash accounting for producers. Right now, uh, there's a cap at 5 million. That cap gets bumped up from 5 million to 25 million, which is excellent. Uh, and that includes for corporate entities as well, and corporate entities in agriculture. Uh, right now, we have 50% bonus depreciation. Upon enactment, that 50% bonus depreciation will go to 100%. It's at 100% bonus depreciation, so full immediate expensing until 2023. Uh, then we see, start to see a 20% phase out. So it's phased out at 20% uh, each year, every year until it's gone. Uh, And then section 179, the current limit is at 500,000. That limit gets bumped up to a million dollars. And then the dollar for dollar phase up that exists is currently at 2 million uh, is bumped up to 2.5 million. A huge win for us is the preservation of the step-up in basis. Uh, May not seem like it, but for quite some time now, part of the conversation in the tax reform debate has been the treatment of the step-up in basis. Uh, if we repeal the death tax, if we raise the exemption limits, how will this provision be treated? Uh, and I, I think you know we heard from producers at last year's convention, at last year's summer business meeting, that the step-up in basis is critically important. Uh, we can't do without it. It needs to be maintained in its present state. That's something that we fought hard for, uh, equally as hard as we fought for the death tax repeal. Unfortunately, we weren't able to get there on death tax, but we did preserve the step-up in basis. Uh, state and local property taxes for businesses. Um, There is a lot of conversation about SALT deductions. Uh, Right now, uh, or in the bill that will be enacted into law, uh, state and local taxes will be allowed as a deduction only when paid or accrued and carrying on a trade or business. So anything on your Schedule C, your Schedule E or your Schedule F. Uh, For anyone else paying and trying to deduct those taxes on the individual side, it'll be capped at $10,000. But a lot of our producers deduct uh, state taxes through their business side. it usually goes through a Schedule F, most farmers I think are are uh, pass the right to T, so they're utilizing that form of the tax code. Um, that will be preserved. And I know a lot of our state affiliates have been getting questions about that. Uh, the tax bill, uh, it does restrict like-kind exchanges to real property only. Uh, it changes the net operating losses from five years uh, carry back to two-year carry back, and it'll be up to 80% Um, of your income and I carry and all carry forward against 80 percent of your income Uh, and interest deductions is probably uh, the most talked about uh, restriction that we've been dealing with since day one Um, at one point the GOP blueprint was talking about eliminating interest deductions outright Um, we are not in a position where they're being completely eliminated so that's good Um, the House or the, the ultimate bill uh, creates a 25 million gross receipts small business exclusion. So any entity uh, with gross receipts over a three-year period of time, uh, their average of 25 million, uh, their average of gross receipts is more than 25 million. Uh, they will be restricted in their ability to deduct interest. Uh, right now it's a 30% cap uh, for the first three years, it's on EBITDA, earnings support, interest, uh, excuse me, uh, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Uh, After four years, that switches to EBIT, uh, so earnings before interest and taxes. Um, But we were successful in securing uh, an exclusion um, so that producers who want to deduct uh, interest and they do not fall under the small business exclusion can continue doing so, uh, but they have to make a one-time, irrevocable election and they will have to give up 100% full expensing, uh, so they'll be forced to depreciate uh, goods at a, over a longer schedule, uh, but can continue deducting interest. Um, so, what does this mean for agriculture? Well, um, you know, it, the GOP is celebrating this. Uh, this effort is a huge win for the American public. Um, for agriculture, you know, it, I would give it a, about a B. Um, we're not in a a terrible position, but we're not in the best position ever. And I I hate to say that, but that's just where we are right now. Um, It would have been great to have full permanent death tax repeal. This was a a once in a generation opportunity. And it's something that uh, even though Republicans uh, on the campaign trail, um, you know, President Trump, they campaigned on death tax repeal. uh, It's something that they weren't able to deliver. And that's because of the cost, Um, you know, they took all of title one and they sunset it. So in eight years, all of the tax cuts for the middle class for individuals, all of that is going away. It's not just the death tax that sunsets and that's important to keep in mind. Um, you know, it's it's not just agriculture that's getting screwed here, candidly. Um, it is everyone on the individual side and that was done because they were trying to make the corporate rate permanent. So we'll have a 21% corporate rate. They lower the rates for individuals. They double the standard deduction for both individuals and couples. But for individuals, it goes away in eight years. Um, you know, the good news is that uh, Congress does not have to worry about paying for extenders. Uh, they only have to worry about paying for something through reconciliation. So uh, we have m- much more action to come. We'll probably see future extenders. Um, this bill was kind of, I don't wanna say it was thrown together, um, but the final legislative package, uh, it will require a number of different technical changes. Um, so we're, we'll see legislation probably in the short term, next you know, three to six months fixing various issues And then we can expect to see legislation, you know, three to five to eight years down the road.
2: Thank you, Danielle. Now we need to turn our focus to trade. Trade continues to be both a challenge and an opportunity for us with the Trump administration. So to give us a recap and an overview, Kent Backus, who is our director of international trade. Kent.
5: Thanks, As Colin mentioned, this has been a uh, interesting year in the trade world. Uh, you know, last year at this time, we were pretty disappointed because we were hoping to see TPP implemented. But given the uh, toxic nature of, of trade on the campaign trail by both Republicans and Democrats, it really uh, put a bitter taste in Congress's mouth, and they decided uh, not to take action. And so, when President Trump uh, was sworn in, one of his first uh, one of his first action items was to withdraw the United States from TPP. As you recall, under TPP, we would have seen that tariff rate on U.S. beef in Japan go from 38.5 percent to 9 percent, which is the greatest access ever negotiated. Uh, so, unfortunately, we traded in uh, all of uh, the benefits we would have had under TPP for the promise of even better deals under bilateral agreements. Uh, Unfortunately, we're here a year later. We have not seen a bilateral agreement with the Japanese. We haven't seen any formal negotiations. Again, we've seen some uh, economic dialogue, but not a whole lot of advancement. So, we're we're kind of frustrated uh, at that point. Um, But with that said, uh, Japan is still a top priority for us. the uh, the Japanese are still trying to pursue the Trans-Pacific Partnership and they've essentially tried to move forward with the other TPP countries. And so uh, we could see that development uh, here pretty soon Uh, That's a top priority for them. Uh, But even without uh, the TPP 11 moving forward, uh, Japan's already formed a trade agreement with the European Union and and they're essentially giving them the same terms of trade that we would have received under TPP, so it's been a it's been a tough time for us there. Um, but one area that the president has has really helped us has been uh, delivering on China. Um, as you remember, uh, last spring, President Trump hosted President Xi from China at Mar a Lago, and this was a summit to discuss a lot of economic issues, security issues. Uh, so prior to their uh, their meeting together. We actually uh, asked the White House to make sure they serve steak to the Chinese president, let them see what they're missing, and President Trump delivered on that. But not only did he serve uh, President Xi a steak, uh, we were also fortunate to see that restoring USB access into China was the number one item coming out of the 100-day action plan. As a result, uh, U.S. negotiators worked really hard and. Uh, within those 90 days following the Mar-a-Lago summit, well, we were able to see a, a China protocol developed and established. We were able to see the first shipments of U.S. beef uh, going to China. We'll talk about that in just a second. And then the uh, the big issue that we've focused most of our attention on has been NAFTA. Uh, President Trump campaigned heavily against NAFTA, and, and not only did he opposed NAFTA, but every other person running for office seemed to oppose NAFTA. So but we've been really focused on trying to see some changes there. Uh, the administration's already started those, that process. We've already seen several rounds of negotiations, and uh, they've committed to meet with the Canadians and the Mexicans at least every three to four weeks, and attempt to try to, uh, to finish those negotiations by the end of the year. Unfortunately, they fell short there. So now I think the goal is to try to finish these negotiations by March. But our message has been pretty simple. We're trying to just make sure that the the, the high standards and the great access we already enjoy under NAFTA is not going to be jeopardized. So our message is pretty simple is just leave us alone. Uh, so looking, looking at specifically at some of the benefits uh, of the Chinese uh, protocol. Keep in mind, we are gonna be restricted to what we can send there. China has laws prohibiting access on the use or prohibiting the use of certain technologies, especially hormones and beta agonists. Uh, So right off the bat, that's a a lot of uh, cattle that we're not gonna be eligible for this. Um, And so only a very small number will be eligible in the first few years. Uh, But not only is our supply limited, we've been out of that market for about 13 years. So now we're going to have to rebuild that supply chain, identify those consumers and, and really try to market the beef uh, that we produce uh, to a consumer. That's really never seen it. Keep in mind, most of the beef that they're consuming is going to be grass finished. And so we're, we're introducing a grain finished flavor profile. that's new to them, but it's also very expensive. And so that's one of the other hindrances into that market. When you look overall, China is a country of 1.4 billion people, the fifth of the world's population with a middle class larger than the entire US population. And we've also seen significant growth in beef imports over the last few years. In 2011, China imported 27,000 metric tons of beef total. And then just five years later, that number jumped over 600,000 metric tons. China is now one of the largest importers of beef in the world, and we want to be part of that market. So, uh, while China is going to be one of the big focuses that, uh one of the big things we focus on, uh, we're still trying to protect what we have. And that's really what our focus is on NAFTA. Uh, you know, we've already seen a couple of rounds of, of the negotiations. Fortunately, our message about, you know, leave us alone, do no harm is, is resonated. Uh, agriculture in general has also taken that message. So, we've been able to, uh to really stay out on the crossfire on a lot of things but we are concerned that the longer these these negotiations drag out um, you know the harder uh it's going to be to conclude keep in mind one reason why we want to see these negotiations conclude by march is that mexico has a presidential election that will start in uh in july and uh, we do not want to get caught up in the med- middle of those politics and then we'll have uh, congressional midterms next fall here back home. So if we're not able to move this forward, move it quickly, uh, this could get funded further down the line. And that's unfortunate because that would distract us from being able to accomplish a lot of things with with Japan. So uh, overall, this has been a a very busy year on the trade front. We've seen some positive wins with China. but also seen some big setbacks by walking away from TPP and possibly jeopardizing NAFTA and our beef in Korea. Uh, But well, I think this next year will be more of a reflection of trying to make some of the advancements, improvements on NAFTA and other areas and trying to move forward with that. But what we'll really need your help on is to keep that pressure on the administration and on Congress so we can get back to what we,
2: what we really need and that's better access into Japan. Colin? Thank you, Kent. One of the bright spots in our relationship with the Trump administration has been our improved relationship with Environmental Protection Agency. For the first time in many years and spanning several different administrations, we find ourselves with an opportunity to work with the EPA rather than just always working against the EPA. So to give you an update on several of the challenges that we are working with them on, turning it over to Scott
6: Yeager, who is our Chief Environmental Counsel, Scott. And, and just to recap with what Colin said, the cattle industry has a lot to be happy about with where the Trump administration is on environmental issues. Uh, Scott Pruitt, who was Trump's pick to be the EPA administrator. He is all about getting industry stakeholders in the room and hearing their perspective on issues. Um, nowhere has that been more clear than with the waters of the United States rule. Um, we have had the opportunity to sit down with his senior advisors and talk about this issue on multiple occasions and, um, and to be able to weigh in really in a way that we had not been able to do in prior administrations, Republican and Democrat alike. Um, so that's, that's a great opportunity for us and we've been taking full advantage of that. Um, and where where WOTUS is at right now is the EPA has proposed to repeal uh, the 2015 WOTUS rule. So we're on a path to victory on WOTUS. So we should all be happy about that. It has to go through the, the formal uh, executive kind of administrative rulemaking processes to get there. So that first step is repealing it formally And uh, EPA took comments on that they received over 700,000 public comments on the repeal proposal and they're currently looking at those comments. They'll have to respond to them and then they'll be able to formally finalize that action and repeal the 2015 Lotus rule. We expect that to happen sometime in the uh, 1st quarter of 2018 and then after that is done, they will propose step 2, which is a new definition of waters of the United States. Now keep in mind, there has to be a jurisdictional limit on where the Clean Water Act applies, and that's what waters of the US does. Um, The 2015 WOTUS rule was terrible because it went way beyond uh, federal jurisdiction and tried to really claim more waters and, and land features than had ever been jurisdictional before under the federal government. So we have an opportunity now with Scott Pruitt's EPA to redefine those terms and to really put proper limitations on the Clean Water Act and, and the federal government's reach on that uh, issue. So we've been fully engaged on that. We've been on the vanguard of this effort. Uh, we've actually developed our own replacement language with the with the um, help of the Environmental Working Group within NCBA. Um, we took several. It was a several month process to develop that language, and we've been able to stop that directly to the EPA, and um, as well as the efforts with the agency, we've also been in, uh, still involved in the litigation uh, the Supreme Court held oral arguments on, on WOTUS uh, this past fall. We were able to sit in the room and really get a feel for where the justices were leaning on that issue, and we think we're going to have a favorable outcome on that effort as well. And, and just to be clear about the Supreme Court case, The specific issue they're uh, hearing is whether our case starts at the district court level or the appellate court level to the menu issue. Um, So we'll hopefully be hearing back from the Supreme Court uh, in the coming weeks on that and uh, we'll be going from there. Um, So WOTUS is on a really good path and we have a lot to be happy about with that. Uh, The other two issues I'll hit on will first RICRA, That's one where environmental groups use the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act to litigate against a group of dairies in Washington state. We've been fully engaged on that in developing a legislative fix that is called the Farm Regulatory Certainty Act. That was introduced by Congressman Newhouse and, and a number of Democrats uh, earlier this year. and now has 67 co-sponsors, including 11 Democrats, so it truly is the bipartisan effort. Uh, we had a subcommittee hearing last month, which went well. Um, So the the ball is moving on that legislation, and we're expecting to see a markup of the bill in the near future. Lastly, I'm going to touch on CERCLA-EPCRA reporting, and this is one that has been kind of sitting in the background for a number of years. It's bubbled back up to the surface this past April due to a D.C. Circuit Court decision that rendered an EPA exemption rule invalid which will subject over 100,000 agricultural producers to reporting under Circla and EPCRA for air emissions from manure. Uh, so we're talking about ammonia and hydrogen sulfide emissions. Those are the odor emissions from manure that if, uh, if we don't get any help from Congress, a lot of people are gonna have to start reporting that stuff. So to that point, we've been successful in delaying the issuance of the court mandate by eight months. It was supposed to take effect back in May. We've been able to push that back to January 22nd, 2018. So that buys us precious little time to work on a legislative fix, which we've been feverishly uh, developing. We have we were successful in getting an appropriation amendment in the House Appropriations Package that would defund EPA's enforcement of those reporting requirements, which means EPA wouldn't be able to go out and, and, and ding you or take an action against you for not reporting. Uh, and that's helpful and that's that's going to be a, a part of the solution here, but it doesn't fix the entire issue because citizens can still go out and sue you for not reporting. So to that end, we have our, our work on a standalone piece of legislation that would fix that. And we're working with uh, committees both in the House and Senate to uh, make sure they're in a good place where we can be able to introduce that uh, coming in the new year. So stay tuned for more on that, but uh, we've had some uh, success there, but also more to go on that. And with that, I'm going to pass it back to Colin.
2: We can't underscore enough how big a victory our efforts on WOTUS have resulted in. This is an issue that spans well over a decade and goes back to legislation that was introduced in Congress to try to achieve this, which ultimately of course was utilized by EPA and their rulemaking that we have been working on. So to get to this point, is uh, is a huge victory not only for NCBA but for the entire agriculture industry one of our partners in our efforts here in Washington DC in ranching across the board is the public lands council Uh, we share a lot of the same priorities we share staff and we share the need to make sure that we are always looking out for our members and our friends who are utilizing uh, grazing leases on these federal lands so to give you a quick update on some of the victories and challenges they're going to turn it over to ethan lane who is the executive director of the public lands council
7: thank you colin well like a lot of the uh, the lobbyists that you've heard from on our our staff tonight it's been a busy first year uh, in this trump administration and with this congress coming right out of the chute about this time last year uh, federal lands leadership across the board at ncba American Sheep Industry Association and the Public Lands Council felt like it was important to make sure we set out a a list of priorities for this new administration, uh, simply because there are so many different issues impacting federal grazing permittees. As anybody operating in the West knows, uh, we tend to serve as sort of the laboratory for federal overreach uh, on a lot of these issues and uh, it's important to kind of provide some direction to this new administration. So, keying off of that document we sort of launched our efforts early in the year on the BLM Planning 2.0 rule. This was a rule implemented at the end of the Obama administration that would have sort of radically changed the way the Bureau of Land Management does its land planning and would remove that local input component that's so critical to making sure they get these decisions right on the ground. We used a, a, a very rare and often Uh, uh, overlooked act called the Congressional Review Act. Some of you may have heard about it at the beginning of this administration. The CRA basically says that Congress can disapprove of a a federal regulation issued by the administration within 60 legislative days of it being published. That gave us a very short window to jump into action and try to get a repeal of this BLM Planning 2.0 rule before it started impacting permits around the West. Uh, PLC and NCBA led the charge on that, and we were successful in, in being one of the few groups to get a CRA across the finish line and to the president's desk in those early months of the administration, which relieved a lot of pressure across BLM country right out of the gate at the beginning of this year. Another issue that we identified in that transition document that we've placed a lot of emphasis on, not just in the last year or two, but for Uh, Several decades across the West is uh, uh, abuse of the Antiquities Act through national monument designations. We're pleased to report that as of about two weeks ago, the President has taken action on a set of recommendations issued by the Secretary of Interior and reduced those national monuments by two million acres thus far. We expect more leading into the next couple of years. Those first two uh, reductions were at Bears Ears in Utah, which of course was a high-profile designation at the end of the Obama administration as well as almost a million acres at Grand Staircase-Escalante that was a designation made famous back in the Clinton administration. Uh, We have statistics from that designation that show that uh, since 1996, when that monument was created, grazing has been reduced by 40% in that area, 60 schools have closed. It's been absolutely destructive to the economy in that local area, so to, to take a million acres out of that monument and start to restore that agricultural footprint is a huge win for producers in the West. And it also bodes well for things to come on the monument front. We expect more action from the president, uh, perhaps up in Oregon at the Cascade Siskiyou monument, uh, and also on some of the monuments in Nevada, as well as some action on the, on the east coast in Maine, uh, and perhaps some of the sea monuments. So uh, they're just getting started on, on some of this action to restrict and reduce the size of these monuments, but we've also put a lot of emphasis and focus on changing the way the Antiquities Act works to ensure that future presidents don't have such a blank check to take these actions without consulting local communities. And you're going to hear me say that a lot because that's been the focus of a lot of the, uh, the action that we've taken in the last year is, is trying to get the administration back towards paying attention to local communities and local input into these federal regulations, which is exactly what we're seeing across the board uh, uh, from, from the Department of Interior and the U.S. Forest Service on these issues. One issue that we're continuing to work on and seeing a lot of progress is the uh, 2015 land use plan amendments for the greater sage grouse. This is an issue impacting producers in 11 Western states. Obviously, for anybody in sage grouse country, this issue has almost dominated your uh, day-to-day for the better part of the last decade or more. The 2015 plans, despite not identifying grazing as one of the top 10 threats to the species, have absolutely been a threat to ranching in sage grouse country. Uh, This is an issue that we've hammered hard uh, from day one, and in this new administration, we saw a secretarial order over the summer uh, asking the Department of Interior to undertake a review of the impacts of these plans. Uh, Those recommendations have led to a new plan amendment process. The scoping period just closed a few weeks ago on the Department of Interior side, and the Forest Service has followed suit with a planning process of their own To try to go back and close some of those open gates on the 2015 plans, The Forest Service in the last 10 days or so has actually gone a step further and said that they will stop implementation on 800 pre-written permit modifications that would have dramatically uh, curtailed grazing in areas where we really need that grazing out on the ground to reduce fuel loads and prevent that sage grouse habitat from burning up during fire season. So we're very pleased with the action the uh, Department of Interior and USDA are taking on this front, but it's going to take a continued effort to make sure that over the next year, to year and a half, that planning process moves forward in a direction that continues to be beneficial for producers. Uh, Everything we're hearing right now, though, is that they get it. They're hearing our our input and uh, are are working towards a a plan that's not just going to work better for producers, but also for the sage-grouse on the ground. Uh, And finally, another big win for us early in this administration, uh, President Obama's memo on mitigation, which set out that no net loss standard. Uh, and and uh, the, uh, some of the, the, the issues that really were drawing concern going into those planning processes was repealed early in this administration. Obviously, mitigation is a topic we continue to be engaged with. Just because we had this, uh, we asked for this memo to be withdrawn does not mean that we feel like mitigation is a topic we want to abandon. This was just not the right way to approach it. This, this, uh, this memo really took kind of a heavy-handed approach. and and didn't factor in the need to really make sure that producers were able to use these tools in an effective way. So we'll stay engaged in that conversation and make sure that as they go back in and define how mitigation looks for producers across the west, uh, it'll be done in a way that, uh, that pays attention to how to get that conservation to the ground. Another big topic for producers across all 50 states is the Endangered Species Act. Obviously, this is another issue that weighs heavy in the west, but we're seeing creep east with Designations of species like the northern long-eared bat, uh, the rusty patched bumblebee and others. And of course, we're looking down the pike towards the, uh, the now famous monarch butterfly. So, all of you in uh, Iowa and the Midwest, Matt Deppie, if you're on the phone, we know that uh, milkweed is becoming a huge industry in the, back in Iowa again as they start to create habitat for the monarch butterfly in anticipation of a status review and potential listing of that species here in the near future. Uh, We have been working on this issue with the Western Governors through their ESA uh, uh, initiative for the last several years. NCBA and PLC participated in all of those sessions uh, going through the first year, as did many of our affiliates. Uh, That input has proved to be invaluable as they crafted a set of recommendations that were endorsed by the Western Governors, 17 to 1 at their meeting in June. The only uh, uh, no vote was Governor Brown of California, which is probably not a shock to anyone on this call right now. Um, But having that kind of resounding bipartisan endorsement of these recommendations really gave a boost to this effort on Capitol Hill. We're hearing positive feedback, not just from Republicans in the US Senate, but Democrats as well on the East Coast that have heard glowing reports about what an inclusive and bipartisan process this has been. Uh, This is really going to form the backbone of what we hope will be a comprehensive ESA modernization effort. We are anticipating legislation coming out of the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee in the near future, and uh, we will be hitting the ground running on that as soon as we have a live bill uh, in an effort to try to get that across the finish line here in the next year before the end of this Congress. Uh, So we have green arrows on this issue across the board, but there is obviously a lot of work left to be done the Endangered Species Act being one of the most popular laws in the country, it's gonna take a lot of work from producers to make sure we get across the point of why this is such a concern for those of us on the ground dealing with it on a day-to-day basis. And with that, I will uh, turn things back over to our president, Craig Uden, to wrap things up.
1: Thank you, Ethan, and thanks to all our presenters. NCB is committed to working on a strong future for the U.S. cattle industry. I wanna thank the staff for their hard work each day on our behalf, each and every day, because they, uh, it's fun to be on the offense versus the defense. And there are a lot of issues. There's a lot happening in DC. Uh, I know we're not always pleased with how things go, but we're, there's a lot of moving parts. As we go back and review some of this stuff tonight, uh, as Allison mentioned, we're engaging with key bipartisan members of Congress and agencies on regulations and uh, delaying some of them and helping guide new legislations And taxes, not 100%, but very beneficial throughout agriculture to the majority of the producers. Uh, Trade, trade is so so greatly important. We've had a great year this year helping the bottom line of producers. And uh, still remains a top priority for NCBA to maintain and increase access for beef globally. Extremely important for the industry. EPA is a huge bright spot, rolling back regulations. Uh, it was mentioned that uh, early on in this administration, going to re- roll back uh, two regulations for each new regulation that's coming forward. Currently I've seen the other day that we're removing 22 regulations for every new regulation. So a lot of moving parts again. Public lands, that's been a win-win. Uh, as they take action on regulation and also redefine how regulators or regulations have been implemented in the past and how we're going to try to implement uh, regulations in the future. Uh, also, I think it's critically important that we've, we've engaged with this administration. We've got huge support with the White House and also building relationships with people like the Secretary uh, of Agriculture, uh, Sonny Perdue. Uh, the interior with uh, Ryan Zinke and EPA with uh, Scott Pruitt. <clears throat> so, as we move into our question and answer session, I want to take a moment and invite everybody to the upcoming Cattle Industry Convention being held uh, January 31st through February 2nd in Phoenix. Uh, I'd love to have you plan to come a dear early and participate in the Cattleman's College Tuesday afternoon and Wednesday morning. Uh, we get packed crowds as Great uh, amount of detail goes into that, and a lot of hot topics that are very pertinent to your operations. The entire convention provides a great opportunity to hear more in-depth information, and uh, also uh, the challenges the industry faces, and it helps helps us chart the course for our future of the beef industry. Uh, now we're going to uh, get to the questions. I want to.
2: Again, thank you for participating I'm on the webinar day. tonight. Thanks, Craig. We've got several questions that have popped up. We're going to try to take as many of these as we possibly can. The first one is, what are we doing to educate non-farm members of Congress about FMD regarding the Farm Bill? Allison.
3: Absolutely. So. Going into this, we knew, you know, one of the difficult tasks would be one to get these members supportive of a farm bill um, coming from districts that maybe don't have a lot of ag jobs. Um, But we always say that everybody eats, right? So um, if we have an FMD outbreak, obviously our our trade is going to be affected. We're going to have, you know, it's a trickle down effect. Um, that will affect our producers and then all the way through uh, the supply chain until we we get things uh, under control. And so, we talk about the, the possibility of increased food costs. This is something that our more urban districts would certainly care about because the bottom line is that they need to be able to feed their constituents and they need food to be uh, easily available. And we already have the cheapest uh, and best quality uh, food supply in the, con- in the world. And uh, if we want to be able to maintain that, then we have to we have to protect our producers and our animals.
2: Next question is, what can we do to improve the tax bill? Danielle.
4: Thanks, Colin. Uh, that's an excellent question. You know, at this point in time, unfortunately, the bill is cooked. Uh, really, we don't have really any more opportunities to make changes. Um, but the one thing that I would say uh, that would improve this bill is making it permanent. Um, you know, our, our biggest talking point is that the death tax doesn't just impact those individuals who pass away or pass away, it, it impacts every individual who is planning for the next generation of agriculture, uh, planning for a new generation of producers to take over their family owned businesses, uh, the amount of resources that are allocated towards that, uh, it's, it's very significant. And so an eight year doubling of the exemption, uh, it just, it fails to provide the certainty that our producers need, uh, to really make sound, smart business decisions. We needed something. More long term, more permanent—not um, just eight years, not ten years, but permanent. Double, you know, double exemption limits for good. Um, even if you're not able to repeal it, um, the fact that all of the Title One provisions sunset is very concerning. So, uh, making all of those provisions permanent uh, is really one of the best things that you can do. Um, you know aside from death tax, the bill really does have a lot of really good wins. Um, 179, the spending provisions, cash accounting, those are all pieces of the tax code that our producers rely on you know, year in and year out uh, and expanding those will go a long way in helping. Um, but I, yeah, I would say making the death tax repeal permanent uh, would have been the, the biggest change. And then you know, if it, the one time irrevocable deductions uh, or election for interest deduction, uh, if that was an annual election, that would have been the other case key thing to help uh, ease the burden, I guess you could say.
2: Our next question is, what are we doing to try to help stem the issue of black vultures?
3: Ethan.
7: Well, black vultures are one of the several species that we're dealing with right now that are subject not to the Endangered Species Act, as many people mistakenly believe, but actually the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And the problem with the Migratory Bird Treaty Act is that it has, in many cases, been far too successful. We're seeing populations of black vultures expand into territory that we've never seen them in before, and the traditional take permits are just not sufficient for producers to get those populations under control in their backyards. And for anyone who's dealing with black vultures on the ground, I know Scott and I have seen the pictures from, uh, from the damage that they can do Uh, and it is not something you would wish on anybody. So, uh, we've engaged in a lot of education on this issue. Uh, The the, the new staff coming into the Department of Interior and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is starting to get up to speed on this, Uh, but what we are asking for is is a depredation order to allow a a much broader amount of take uh, uh, to reduce this population down to a point where it's a healthy population uh, for the species, but it's also not uh, getting to a point where it's having the dramatic impact it currently is on cattle producers throughout that expanding uh, black vulture range. We're also seeing this incidentally with ravens in the West and several other species. So, uh, the, uh, the the effects of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act being a little too successful in some of these areas is something that we have an ongoing dialogue with uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service about.
2: Thank you, Ethan. The question is, what is the status of immigration reform, specifically the bill introduced by Chairman Bob Goodlatte, Chairman of the, of the House Judiciary Committee? Allison.
3: So, um, Chairman Goodlatte did have uh, some legislation that passed out of House Judiciary Committee um, along with this bill that created an H2C program. Um, was also a mandatory e-verify bill that, that passed out of the committee at the same time. But what's inside the um, the Ag Guest Worker Bill that was passed out of the committee, as I stated, it um, introduces or it uh, institutes a new program called H2C. Um, There are a couple of items that had to be included in this package in order to get it out of this committee. There is a touchback on the workers that that come in. Um, It does create the ability to get a three-year work visa for our year-round industries such such as ours. The touchback for the three-year visa is 45 days. It doesn't have to be uh, 45 consecutive days, which I think was um, would would be helpful to our industry. There's also a cap on the amount of workers that can come into this program. The cap is at 450,000. Um, 20,000 of, of that 450,000 would be reserved for um, meat processing jobs. Um, on top of this, uh, 450, any current H-2A worker that goes back to their same farm or ranch is not included in that 450. Also, um, after the first year of this new program, if the 450,000 is reached, there is an automatic increase of 5 um, percent on that 450,000. Also, if that number for some reason would not be reached, there would be a decrease of um, of 5 percent. So. Uh, moving forward, I'm not entirely sure where uh, the committee sees this legislation going. Obviously, there's a lot of conversation out there on the immigration front. So this bill is certainly out there and in the mix, but um, NCBA was supportive of this legislation and we worked very closely with the committee and we will continue to do so.
2: Next question we have is, what do the political winds look like heading into 2018? And how might that impact not only the agenda, but also the midterm elections? Uh, it is way too early to determine what's going to happen come November. There's a lot of things that will factor into that. One, I believe, is if they get this tax bill signed by the president by the end of the year, which it looks like they will, uh, how quickly will your average American see a change in their paycheck, and will they remember that come November? Uh, The whole issue of sexual harassment is far from over here in Washington, D.C. This is one that is going to Congress well into 2018 and I can expect many more members of Congress being either accused or stepping down because of this so I do believe that this probably will be one of the single biggest issues that has an impact on this midterm election neither party right now should be confident Uh, I think that is something that uh, I feel strongly about they both are gonna have to work hard Republicans if they want to keep the house and the Senate the democrats if they truly think they have a chance to regain one or both houses of congress Uh, when you look at the numbers the opportunities are there for any of these scenarios to play out it's one thing we're going to have to watch very closely because as i said earlier depending upon who controls congress after the midterm election will have a significant impact on our ability and the president's ability to run legislation that would be cattle friendly That does not take away the president's opportunity to continue his rollback of the regulatory burden that we see, but it could definitely slow down a lot of the legislative efforts that we have seen and talked about here tonight. So uh, stay tuned on this one Uh, when you look at the number of Republicans in particular, who are being challenged by people to the right of them or claiming to be the right of them. uh, That is also something that we will start seeing here early in 2018 throughout the primary season. But it is something that uh, we are engaged in. It was one of the reasons why we have a political action committee. NCBA PAC is a tremendous tool for us here in Washington, D.C. It allows us to take money that you help donate in dollar for dollar, everything that you send to us, nothing is skimmed off the top to pay for expenses or salaries or operating costs. Every dollar we get from you, we turn around and give to a member of Congress, an incumbent, or even challengers. Who are cattle friendly, to do everything we can to try to influence these elections in a way that allows us to have as many friends on Capitol Hill as possible. And those are friends on both sides of the aisle. Any organization that feels that they can be successful in Washington, D.C., dealing with one party and not the other, is going to have a lot of disappointment in their future. We have to have friends on both sides of the aisle. And we do have friends on both sides of the aisle. We will continue to grow the friends because for us, it's not about Democrat versus Republican. It's about who's actually working to help us. And we have as many friends on the Democratic side as we do on the Republican side, and we need to make sure that we keep them around fighting for us because we still have a tremendous number of challenges and we need people who are willing to step up and fight. So the PAC is something that I encourage all of you to contribute to. You'll have plenty of opportunities at the annual convention in Phoenix. We have a sweepstakes where you can win uh, not only a Polaris Ranger, but also have a chance at a rifle. We will have a silent auction and also a live auction. So come help us as we continue to be the number one pack in Washington, DC. And we also encourage all of you who are not NCBA members to join up. Uh, We can see your name on the list right now. So we know if you are or you aren't. And there's several of you on here right now that aren't NCBA members. So pay your dues, come join us. I think as you have seen, we have a strong team here in Washington, DC. We're getting a lot done. We have a lot more yet to get done. It's your membership that continues to give us the strength because our power in Washington DC is based on the fact that you as producers as members of this association, put together the policy vote on the policy, which ultimately directs our everyday action here in Washington DC. We are truly a grassroots organization and that's only uh, because of your, your engagement and your willingness to step up and be a part of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. So for those of you who are members, thank you for your support. Again, those of you who are joining us tonight that aren't, uh, you probably need to go to the website, sign up, or uh, talk to your neighbor who might be an NCBA member and figure out how you can join us because we are doing everything we can to keep the government out of your business, plain and simple. And there is strength in numbers. That's all the questions that we've had tonight. Uh, We appreciate you joining us and we encourage all of you to join in CBA, give to the pack and come join us in Phoenix in 2018. Thanks for jumping on the webinar this evening. Have a good night and happy holidays.